0: They're people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Toxic Avengers Podcast. Thanks for joining. For this episode, I spoke with Sharon Lerner, investigative reporter for The Intercept, whose groundbreaking work has included in-depth writing on a host of chemical-related issues, including PFAS, pesticides, plastic waste, and environmental justice. We began our conversation discussing her recent stories on systemic problems within the Environmental Protection Agency's Toxics Office, including career managers overriding the findings of agency scientists that chemicals under review pose a health risk to the public. We then trace the path of her career, work methods, and areas of interest that have led to becoming perhaps the most important environmental journalist in the country. Here's my interview with Sharon Lerner, recorded last July. Hit record. Okay, great. So we're, we don't miss anything good, but... How are you? We've never actually met, I don't think. In I know, funny. Even funny. remotely.
1: Yeah, good to meet you.
0: Yes, it's great to meet you too. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Sure,
1: my pleasure. Um,
0: so, just before we get started, your Tosca piece, the last week, the first one, which I understand is going to be one of several that are coming, is that? Yeah. And there are, you know, it's about, for people, if this makes it into the... If this makes it into the final podcast, it's the first in a series about uh, based on complaints of whistleblowers within TOSCA's, within the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention's New Chemicals Program, which is charged with reviewing the safety of new chemicals that are proposed to be allowed onto the market under the Toxic Substances Control Act, TOSCA. And your story last week was... Was based on whistleblowers complaining. Most, I believe it was all scientists who were raising concerns about their work being changed or their scientific conclusions being rejected or suppressed based by management, all in the direction of weakening the health, uh, the judgment of health, potential health effects from the proposed new chemical in order to allow it to be approved with fewer restrictions to benefit the chemical industry. Is that a? Fair,
1: yeah. Slightly real description, summer.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. What, what kind of reaction have you gotten to that article
1: um, so far? I I, far? I didn't spend a lot of time online after it, so I didn't see much of the Twitter response. I know that it got attention, um, and I did go on CBS News and on The Young Turks to talk about it. Um, and i've heard from quite interestingly from a number of uh people still at epa or have left epa who said actually and this and let me tell you about this and it seems to have um gotten that kind of a response where people say oh that's just the tip of the iceberg and let me tell you what else um yeah so i have done a number of interviews since then about kind of more in that theme
0: so to me, I think that's a blockbuster story. I'm sure it's just the tip of the iceberg. And I think, you know, I don't know how many ultimately you'll end up writing if it's three or four or ten. Maybe it'll be like as big as your ongoing series <laughs> about PFOS. But I think and I'm hopeful that it's going to be very consequential, that it's really going to finally forced the issue of a need for a serious shift at that in the toxics office epa's toxics office and a real change in the culture there and you wrote a a second piece it was remarkable that you published these two stories the same week you had another story about the pesticides program and for people who don't know at the epa's toxics office Primarily handles two statutes. It handles the Toxic Substance Control Act and it handles pesticide approvals under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, FIFRA. So you had a story in there about a very similar issue about scientists in that side of the program reporting that they're excuse me their conclusions were being altered or erased or ignored or overruled or overwritten and um and not only that there i think in both articles you talked about retribution essentially you know uh, ceilings on advancement and lost professional opportunities and a lot of pressure and unpleasantness from from managers in the toxics program same thing to try to ensure that pesticides could continue to be approved for market, even though there was a lot of data that you reported on that showed a number of these pesticides were clearly had health effects of significant concern. Uh, So let's see, I summarized that. What was, was my question? Do you have more coming on that side of the ledger? Do you think? Well,
1: I do think that next step is going to be, you know, continuing with this series about the whistleblowers. Right.
0: Yeah, and that that was something that really struck out to me, that it, it was all whistleblowers. Virtually the whole story was based on the the sources cited and quoted were whistleblowers. And as I know you know, typically whistleblowers, almost by definition, they've first reported their, they've often reported their concerns up the chain and not gotten any satisfaction or Attention or response or adequate response. Sometimes they've gotten retribution, other times they've just gotten ignored. And is that, does that sound consistent for you as to what's happened in most of these cases?
1: Yeah, they all of them had reported, made complaints either to the IG or the Office of Te- uh, Integrity or both, and had waited several months and came to me because they felt they couldn't wait any longer.
0: Right. That's a very important point. And uh, these a number of these instances, uh, you know, examples of, of these kind of of the suppression of the scientists that you cite generally predate the Trump administration. So the last four years was under the Trump administration and sort of the Trump EPA, quote unquote. Widely recognized, and you've written a lot about many stories about all that went on during that four years to undermine protection from chemicals, not just in the toxics office, but also the air office and water office, lots of things. But this, so there were specific examples of this happening over the past four years, certainly. But this cultural problem we just started out talking about well predates the arrival of the Trump administration, even though they certainly were. It fit in, They fit in very well with that approach to um, catering to industry, but this goes back certainly through the Obama administration and even before that. Is that your understanding of it?
1: Yeah, it does. It predates it, and it also has extended beyond the Trump administration. So, you know, the whistleblower piece was based on four different whistleblowers who uh, worked in the Office of New Chemicals. All three of the four were removed from the program after uh, standing up for their work and saying, you know, I will, you know, refusing to change things and and basically pushing back against that pressure. One of the whistleblowers remains in that office. And she told me without a doubt that the retaliation has continued as has the monkeying with the signs.
0: Right. So even before your stories came out I had been planning to ask you about this sort of your take your impression on the Biden administration so far what kind of changes you've seen and what kind of changes you haven't seen with this new administration and sort of your I don't know a little bit of your prognostication from from what you know and what you've you've done a huge amount of writing about the agency what you kind of expect to see or not see going forward?
1: Well, we've definitely heard really good things from Biden and from Reagan, you know, the administrators saying that they really care about science and, you know, from day one saying that they wanted to, to make sure that, you know, science leads the way and that they would be doing basically an overhaul at all the agencies, including the EPA, to make sure that to preserve scientific integrity. One of the problems that seems to be coming up in EPA is that um, and and I wrote a separate article about this is that as they attempt to do this sort of investigation and cleanup, they've made it very clear that they're not going to be punishing anybody. So if they find wrongdoing and I asked Francesca Griffo, who is in charge of this process at EPA about this, and she said it's not in our lane, you know, that, that basically the IG can punish but that it's not for them and they're, they're forward-looking. Um, and Regan has said that too, that they're kind of looking ahead. But I do think in the instances I've written about when there are really some major, I mean, I don't want to say allegations because we have evidence of them, although there has to be a proper investigation, but we know that there has there ha- have been actions that have serious health consequences, really, uh, and environmental consequences. And I think to just say, OK, we're going to do better next time is not going to be enough in this case.
0: Right. Uh, you know, I that was a, another really good piece. And I was very discouraged to see those quotes from the EPA folks with this frame of, well, we're not going to punish anybody The real issue, I mean, it's a workplace. This is an issue of accountability, and whether you're doing your job properly or not. And certainly, in the workplaces I'm familiar with, the idea that you would be retaliating against employee lower, you know, lower-level employees and changing their work and completely undermining both the laws you're supposed to administer and your the mission of the agency, and that would just it would not just get swept under the rug as well. We're not going to punish anybody. It's a really discouraging way of viewing things and and sort of a toothless my hands are tied response and
1: that's how it's been going for years that's why it has continued for years because nobody's really gotten in trouble for it
0: right well like i said i mean i i hope you'll be able to get more material and write more stories about this cuz i i think it it really could be um it's going to force the issue i think in a way or i'm hoping it well, will, certainly my plan uh, that it hasn't been forced previously. Well, so that, I wanted to go back and start at the beginning, but since you just said that, I'll, I'll, I'll just stick with this for a minute. I had wanted to, so we're going to talk about your journalistic career and your time at The Intercept, uh, which I think is most of the writing you've been doing of late. Is that right? Are you exclusively with The Intercept? Or? I
1: mean, I, yeah, I'm on staff at The Intercept. I, I I'm over the past five years I have only occasionally written pieces for the Times that basically recap what I've already written in The Intercept, or I've done uh, a radio piece or two that's about my work at The Intercept. But that's where I am.
0: Right. Okay. And do you you conceive of the work that you're doing as – I mean, I'll just throw out this phrase, and you can react to it however you want. Advocacy journalism, is that a – do you like that or do you not like that? Or
1: I don't really like that. Okay. No, I, it's journalism. You know, mm-hmm. it's journalism. You know, if I'm advocating it for anything, it's the public good. I don't see myself, you know, aligned with agencies or any, I mean, sorry, with any, you know, advocacy organizations. Exactly. I just feel like I'm, you know, I'm interested in. Public health and environmental health, you know, health integrity, and in the wrongdoing, uh, you know, keeping keeping light and focus on on government and and on polluters. And I wanna, I mean, so I I think of myself really just as a journalist. Though my title is investigative journalist. I think mm-hmm. pretty much every good journalist is an investigative journalist. But yeah, I don't quite think of it as I don't think of it as ethically like journalism, just
0: journalism. A part of why I asked that, or was kind of framing that, was because of the op-eds that you've done, which I feel like is a little unusual for journalists to...
1: The reason I do that is because uh, I feel like that allows me to expand upon my work, mm-hmm. like in the Times, which gets to a different audience. You know, the opinion, like, basically, the only opinion is the opinion I reach as a journalist. You know, it it is opinionated in that here's what I found and here's what it leads me to believe, but it's not, I don't think of it as taking away from my sort of integrity as a journalist, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. With that sort of introduction and just to say, oh, I already said it. I'm really excited about the work you're doing right now. Thank you. And uh, I think, I'm not saying it's long overdue that you did it, it's great that you're doing it, and the stories that are going to come out are, are very long overdue uh, and, and really important. So, okay, so let's go back, and then we'll, come, we'll go back and then forward again. Tell me where you're from,
1: where you grew up. I grew up in the suburbs of New York City in Eastchester, New York. And uh, I've lived pretty much my whole life in New York, with the exception of the very beginning, California. You were born
0: in California?
1: My dad was in the army, yes.
0: Okay. So very briefly. Say a little bit about your childhood.
1: Well, I'm the youngest of three children, and I don't think I knew that I was going to do this kind of work until, you know, I certainly didn't grow up thinking I'm going to write about chemicals. I, I don't know.
0: Did you see all the president's men or something early on, or have sort of a Watergate
1: oh, feeling kind of like thing? I absolutely need to be a journalist? Yeah, no, but I liked I liked knowing about you know I mean no just like I'm I've always been a very curious person, and in my own ways, I guess a pushy person, which actually I think is really important for this work. I don't like being told to be quiet or being told you know none of your business or kind of thing so maybe (laughs) i don't know
0: what kind of uh what were you focused on in high school or did you have hobbies or sports or i
1: i did like funny question i did like sports i liked all subjects i was kind of like a math person not necessarily a science person i don't know that i had like a, a driving passion in as a kid, exactly. I definitely, I definitely had a sense of um, social justice and injustice, and you know, was interested in, in questions of kind of power imbalances. You know, I think that's been true throughout my life.
0: Mm-hmm. So, was the environment some? Were you an outdoor person? Were you interested in the natural world? Were you were there local environmental issues?
1: Yes, but you know, I grew up in, I grew up in the suburbs, so I wasn't like, you know, a country girl really like deeply, you know, spending lots and lots of time deep in nature. Um when I did, I liked it, but it um I don't I don't think it was that. I mean, I, and the health part, you know, my mother is a nurse and my dad's a doctor and I think that there was that um sure, that
0: an appreciation of health at least. Yeah. And, and how things can, yeah, how people can be affected. Okay, so then you you went to college or university. Where was that?
1: Mm-hmm. At Brown. I went to Brown. And then I, I went, so when I left college, I went to work for an AIDS organization in the middle of the AIDS crisis. And that was super intense um, and definitely gave me a sense of, um, kind of the politics of health. Um, and I then went to public health school and as I was in public health school, I realized really quickly, like I didn't at all want to work in any of the professions they were preparing me to work in as much as I found what they, what I was studying really interesting, the subject of it, you know, I, when I was in public health school, I began to write uh, freelance, and that was like way more interesting than the classwork to me <laughs> like i just loved it so that kind of transition once i graduated i just went and wrote
0: i see so at at brown what did you major in at mm, brown
1: american civilization i studied a lot of history and i took a lot of music classes you know it was kind of classic uh i don't know uh, just very jumping around. It was classic Brown at the time, people being, you know, there were no requirements. I took a lot of, you know, weird classes and found them all interesting and was very confused at the end.
0: Right. Do you play an instrument?
1: I do. I play the piano. uh, And in my 20s, I played the trumpet and and as a kid and played um, in bands a little bit in uh, my 20s.
0: Oh, what kind of what like jazz bands
1: I did I played in a, a in a big band and oh great and and a couple other things yeah Oh, huh.
0: do you still go do you go out and see jazz or hear jazz in New York?
1: Um no, well, not these days. I'm happy to say that my son is now playing the trumpet so it is it is my hope that we will he's in high school now that at some point the two of us will play a duet that's my that's my hope.
0: Oh, that's great. So you weren't, you weren't really into the writing yet, even at Brown, is that right? Yeah, no. Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, but you got into activism, sort of you were interested in AIDS. I mean, that was...
1: Yeah, I was interested. It was the time of ACT UP, and I was kind of interested in all that was going on. And, and it was, I ended up working in the policy department of GMHC, and it was interesting to see kind of all the laws and how, how you know... People on the ground were pushing back against the injustices. It was really an intense time, and and that was a really interesting education. From there, I ended up both freelancing, but also I I took a job – as the editor of this tiny little journal called the health pack bulletin which was oh, yeah. um yeah this really lefty journal about public health in new york city doesn't exist anymore but it was kind of started in the 60s and 70s and had all these real firebrands who, who were you know incredibly knowledgeable public health folks doctors and policy people and activists who had who had been kind of fighting on behalf of the underserved for years and it was that was real education for me too and it was
0: really interesting it was tiny
1: and so i did everything from you know like lay out the magazine to edit things to write to you know it was very and it was super grassroots and it was like myself and two other people and it was and it was just really interesting you know it it was it was i learned a lot
0: your career starts more in a health focus even your writing family issues public benefits and things of that nature and also reproductive rights yeah before you get into the environment so So you were at the, when you say you went back to school, is that the, is that at the new school?
1: No, I went to, I went to Columbia and got my public health degree. And I'm trying to remember, that must be, I went to, I was in Health Pack, then I went to Columbia and got my public health degree. Then I started writing, mostly in the beginning for Ms. Magazine. And I ended up working at the Village Voice and writing a column or two different columns about one was about health policy it was like it was kind of the beginning of hmos and was like about insurance coverage and all the kind of slates and you know the, the the vagaries of that industry and then i wrote something called um body politics which was like very broadly about you know all sorts of things reproductive rights local issues like anything foot fetishes you know it was very broad and then, uh, and then I worked in radio for a while, and I was a producer on a public sh- radio show about the brain. And then I did some like public radio freelancing.
0: Oh, so you made your way into journalism, just a
1: through the side door. Was that
0: through the side door? Was that just sort of in? very intentional or no
1: like had i had my stuff together and you know i i wish i i don't know i have wished in the past that i was the kind of person that said i'm gonna major in journalism not the brown have that major and i'm gonna you know work for the for the newspaper and then i'm gonna do you know go through it the right way i didn't do that i you know i kind of followed my interests and then as i was doing that found that it was really satisfying to try to write about them and so yeah. when I was at GMHC was when I started writing for these kind of free publications about the things I was seeing in the world of HIV. And then eventually and then I was at uh, The Voice and then I was I went to the public radio show and eventually I did make my way to the new school where I was teaching journalism. And, but it was sort of down the line and I had worked a lot at that point. I see. And so when you're at
0: the voice, I mean, that's pre everybody working remotely oh, yeah. or whatever. So what say a little bit about how that was, was, was Leslie Savan there then? And, and uh, I don't know, Greg Tate and Gre- Chris Gow. Greg Tate. I mean, I,
1: I Greg Tate was there when I was there. Chris Gow was there. Um, not everybody was not in the office all the time. I had a very Mm -hmm. wonderful editor who really taught me a lot. It was a good place for me to learn about writing and about deadlines and about like up to that point, it had been, you know, you freelance, you put in a piece, whatever. And this was like, you're, you know, I had, I had to come up with ideas and execute them and get them done. And there was not a lot of wiggle room and that was a good education.
0: And so those those, for those two columns, were you actually doing reporting? Or was yeah. it more sort of... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and so there, too, you just... You picked up those skills?
1: Yeah. So many people in journalism do. I mean, these days, I guess there are a lot of people who go to journalism school. But, you know, so many people I've met along the way, you know, great journalists have, have never gone to journalism school. Right. Kind of a right. recent
0: sure. development. Yeah. At that point, did you have any... Mentors or writers who you particularly emulated, or or reporters who you thought were, you know.
1: Well, you know, editors definitely. Karen Cook at the Voice was a really important person for me as an editor, and I loved, you know, as much as I wasn't writing them back then. I always loved long form stories, you know, like Catherine Boo, and that that kind of where I was like, oh, you know, you just want to. I always want to like especially if it's a hard subject, like the things that she has written about, I just feel like, well, you might as well draw me in and take me there as opposed to like, you know, that's kind of the only way you want to learn about some of that stuff.
0: Right. Okay. So then you were teaching at the new school and, and, and you, I don't know if it's around that time you started. Well, I think you started writing for the nation.
1: Yeah. I have, I wrote for the nation on and off for many, many years. Um, And then somewhere after the new school, I wrote a book and I I had some kids and it was like a good, I realized at one point I had a, I was very pregnant and I had a book contract and a full-time job at the new school. And I was like, something's going to give and it's not the kids. So I kept the book contract and I, then I kind of went back off to put the book out and then freelanced and kind of floated around for a bit
0: and the the book is called The War on Moms. Yes, right? I
1: hate that title which was not mine. But it you know it, what it was was reporting on on family policy and how crappy it is in the US and it was, pretty, it was sort of before the wave of of attention to the lack of paid family leave and that kind of thing. And I was again a lot of reporting firsthand about about how people cope and parent without the policies that make it um, easy to do that,
0: you know? Right. And how did that book contract, come, how did the contract to do that book come about?
1: An editor reached out to me because I had been writing about that stuff anyway, I guess in the nation and elsewhere. And it seemed like a, a good idea. I'm not sure, I, like, it's funny thinking back, it was an education to write that book. Um, it's a super hard thing. It turns out (laughs) it was for me anyway, to, to write that. And, you know, I'm not sure I would, I think it's the right way to write a book that someone comes to you and says, I want you to write a book. I kind of think the next time, if I ever write a book, it will be bursting out of me. And I'll only write it if, you know, by not writing it, I would die, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, where you have to write it you know, because otherwise it's such a tremendous amount of work to, to write a book. I don't think that it would be worth it. All that you have to go through unless you basically can't not do it.
0: And it doesn't sound like that's your current state of mind.
1: Well, I feel so lucky right now to have this um, publication. That's like so wonderful in so many ways, like as a place to work, it's, super wonderful you know when I said you know the next part of the story about PFAS you know is in China they said go you know when they just have never you know I said well I have like 10,000 words on this woman who may or may not have committed a crime <laughs> you know but like there is this but there's a real story there yes you know like they they've been very wonderful about Supporting stories that other places wouldn't enjoy, you know, and you know, do you want an endless series on what in the beginning was a chemical no one or a group of chemicals no one had ever heard of? Yes, they want that. Nobody else wanted that, you know. So I really do give credit to the Intercept for that, and it's a so right now for me. It's very, it's wonderful to like be able to write pieces that I think are interesting and important and then go on to the next piece and go on to the next piece because there's no shortage of things that need to be covered right now that they want me to cover.
0: Right. You, you, I think you started writing at The Intercept around 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first, the, you started with the series, The Teflon Toxin. Mm-hmm. That's in August of 2015. So how did you hook up with The Intercept? How did that relationship come about?
1: Well, I was researching that story on PFOA, which at first I thought it was a story about New Jersey because PFOA, there was contamination in New Jersey. And there was this thing called the Drinking Water Quality Institute, which was shut down. And I knew that it being shut down had something to do with PFOA and it had something to do with DuPont. I was trying to figure it out. And when I was in the middle of it, I kind of realized, came to learn that PFOA, which I was learning about in New Jersey, was the same thing as what they were calling C8 in West Virginia, same chemical, same company. The, similar messes and like, you know, and all part of the the same thing. So at the time I had a grant from the investigative fund and it was one of those things where I, I again, I thought I was writing this story about New Jersey and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I hooked up actually with the Washington Post and was going to do it for the Washington Post. And then we learned that uh, other publications were also going to do the same story among them the New York Times They said they didn't want to be involved in that and I but I felt like wait a minute you know It can be really hard to like navigate things when the New York Times gets involved because oh the New York Times has it So, you know, nobody else can do it. Right. And I felt like no, 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 no I <laughs> I at that point had been researching this story for months and I was like I am going to write this story And it just kind of made me more determined to get it out and get it out quickly. So I did. And uh, what happened was the folks at the investigative fund, my editor there, Sarah Bluestain, connected me with um, the Intercept. And the Intercept, I already knew the editor because she had been my editor at The Nation. So anyway, so uh, and that's and my now editor at the Intercept, a man named Roger Hodge, had just come aboard and he ended up editing that series for me and that ended up being a great uh, connection and he is still my editor today
0: hmm. so just to go back one sec you were at the nation and then you were at the american prospect
1: well just freelancing uh, yeah i was Freelance, a contributor right. yeah
0: right and so were any of the stories before this the? PFOA, the New Jersey story, were any of those other stories environment focused? Or is that kind of the first one?
1: Yes, yes, actually, I, the kind of turning point for me in terms of getting into environmental journalism was a story that I wrote for the nation, which was about a cancer cluster. And I use the term advisedly, I really do mean a cancer cluster in Florida. And it was these pediatric brain tumors. And it was that was a huge learning experience for me. I spent way too much time on that piece and it ended up taking up the entire issue of the nation at the time. And it was about these kids who had brain cancer. Um, They were across like a, a kind of bog, like a marshy area from a defense contractor. And trying to, you know, it was about the difficulties that community faced in trying to put the pieces together. And also really opened my eyes to the difficulties that any community faces, kind of blaming any particular cancer or, or group of cancers on a single exposure and how much of an uphill battle it was. And it really, there was something about that that, writing that piece that made me, it it was like a very difficult subject to wrestle, but there was something very satisfying in trying to like, you know, not walking away from it and saying, OK, the uncertainty is part of what we're talking about here. Let's just deal with it head on. And and also, you know talk about why the can- cancer registry is flawed talk about the different pressures on the health department talk about the connections between the company and the community you know just like grapple with the whole thing and it was and it felt it felt to me very much like like this is for me you know <laughs> like like oh i can see why nobody wants to do this you know and i think that i would like to do this you know <laughs> at the same time yeah. you know
0: and uh at that were you familiar then with you know the wooburn and the civil action story or, or at that point
1: yes well right yes and that book as soon as that book came out and it was after I, i think it was after my piece came out but i read it with the most like i loved that book i loved that book and when it won the Pulitzer, I jumped up and down and screamed. I was so happy I because I, I love that book. Dan Fagan did such a good job. And it really like he, he is a total inspiration for me, like just felt like, oh, my gosh, he committed to paper. This this just, you know, it, it's that same kind of like, yeah. OK, like, let's just take it all on. You know, let's just deal with everything. And. I think he did such a beautiful job with that book. And it was just, yeah, it was huge for me.
0: You know, if you're going to get into the environmental issues, it's a great entry point because like you're saying, there's all these complexities and difficulties and it, it sort of primes you for that and the, and, and the real consequences of the pollution Yeah. in a way. Okay. So, so you, you wrote that at the Nation. So then you start writing that you get interested. You're still a freelancer, I guess, and you get interested in this New Jersey story about PFOa. How did that even how did that even come on your radar? New Jersey Drinking Water fund? How's that even on your radar?
1: I think it's a, some an activist in New Jersey reached out to me and I said, "Oh, that seems really interesting." And then I believe I'm trying to piece it, and then I forgot how I've connected the West Virginia part. And then I connected with Rob lot, who is the attorney. Uh, representing the folks from West Virginia, and he he really was generous in his like. Uh, he's an am- amazing attorney, but he also understood or saw in me. You know, sometimes people blow you off, like, "Oh, you're not affiliated with a big publication or whatever else they might decide about you that they don't think you're worthy." You're not you with know? the New York Times, yeah, and you know, and actually he had, he already knew that the New York Times wanted to write about it. And he had advisors that were trying to like, have him not speak to me, (laughs) you know? So, so I mean, I think that's a fair assessment and, you know, but, but, you know, he didn't hand me things on a platter, but I think he appreciated that I was determined to get the story out. And after I put out part one, for sure, you know, I think that he understood that I I was going to get the story out. And so when when I did understand that the New York Times Magazine was also on the story, I just worked more quickly, you know, and then we put it out in three parts months before them. And, you know, and still to this day, you know, it's like, you know, people (laughs) will like, you know, there's a way that the New York Times Magazine just kind of you know, obscures everything else or can, you know, but that's just what it is. Right. I, that, that
0: story I feel was, uh, was a little narrower. It was more, well, I mean, it's kind of more of the story that becomes the movie, whereas yours has been, you know, much more spread out, even in the first three, it's, it's, they're pretty different pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh So, when did you know it was going to be that length? You know, th- at least the initial three parts it's under this title sort of, of the whole of that series, that trilogy, I guess it is the Teflon toxin. And, you know, at what point did you know, okay, this is going to need to be three or I have enough material or this is how, how did you conceive it? Or did an editor kind of come up with that?
1: We, we talked to three. you know, originally it was, it, you know, is this one piece? Certainly not. And then it was like, you know, the, the overview of the chemical and what it is, the lawsuit, which was the second one, the case against DuPont. And the third one was just all about reg- regulation. And it felt like to me, in a way that was the most important part, even though maybe the most boring, and then we just interspersed the stories of the people affected throughout. But the, you know, the last one, how, um, you know, what do we say the Teflon, I can't how DuPont, uh, you know, basically got by the the EPA ended up feeling sort of like the most substantial part to me. And that's what, you know, the times didn't get into at all, but it's like, that's been a lot, that, that kind of thing is what I ended up writing a lot about since, right? Just Absolutely. all the kind of, you know, how does the company, even when there's tons of evidence that they've done something hugely wrong, and that's very consequential to the planet, to humanity, to animals, how do they just keep going and, and, you know, and minimize any negative consequences to them and their shareholders? And and that's, so that, I mean, so there are three parts, but to me, like, that was sort of the heart of it. Right. And
0: that, that I mean, that what you just said is, it's what you're writing about what we started out talking about it's the same issue really it's the it's not only the epa toxics office but that's that's the thing it's the and yeah. to me there's just no way to really absorb even a small part of the PFAS story and not you know have really put in front of you how badly broken the system is and right. uh, particularly that third part three got into that, you know, sort of really getting into how the system is broken. And again, not at all in a partisan way. That wasn't about the Bush administration or the Clinton administration or Obama or Trump. That, I mean, it was predates Trump, obviously. But, you know, these, these systemic problems of how pollution and, and toxic chemicals are not getting solved cut quite well across party lines, unfortunately, or fortunately or unfortunately, yeah. I don't know. Okay, so you you, what was the response to that? Those first three pieces. I mean, the internet. Excuse me, the intercept. What is the reach of the intercept, and what is the readership of the intercept?
1: Uh, I don't know that I have quotable numbers on that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've. Uh, I I don't know. I can ask and get them. That's for fine. You I, I mean,
0: that's fine. I'm just curious. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. So I mean, I think the way journalism works, I mean, it was the beginning of the intercept when that came out or toward the beginning. And so not that many people, perhaps, at least in the world of, you know, environment had heard of it. Um, but I think it reached, it certainly had a wide reach, you know, I got the sense that it was um, read widely, you know, but I, that's not so helpful. And, you know, it's not specific, but I, I mean, it certainly felt like it got out there.
0: Let me ask you one more question about that. This is carried through through all your writing about PFOS, but it has a – those stories have a certain look. There's a design, you know, a, a very – I think very powerful initial designs that are then carry through to each story. You know, how how many – editors worked with you on that and what what's sort of the process of really putting that all together
1: well we have this amazing artist at the intercept uh, named suhi cho who has been doing all the art for the for what we now call the bad chemistry series and initially for the teflon toxin series and it's it's so wise and wonderful and perfect yeah she's great and uh she has made so many variations on this theme, these kind of bold colors and the black, you know, the outlines. And, and every time I come up with some, ridic- either like obscure or narrow or weird, or, you know, she manages to do it. And I, I remember I was doing a piece on how, uh, a study that was looking at the relationship between PFAS levels and sperm, uh, malformations. And, you know, and I thought, you know, good luck. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you came up with. And it was perfect. It was, you know, she's just perfect.
0: She's so good. Yes. I'm, I'm a huge fan. And as I think, you know, I actually, you know, she's, she did the logo for this podcast.
1: Oh, That's so good.
0: Yeah. So I'm really excited for when it actually launches. Um, I think she's waiting for it to launch. And she's so
1: great. Yeah. yeah, my dream is, like, someday if there's, I don't know what the context would be, but wouldn't it be great to have, like, a little show of her artwork oh, from absolutely. this series? like
0: Yeah, oh, I, I can't get enough of it. And just even scrolling, yeah. you know, they're, they're just amazing. Okay, so then how did it, at that point, you've done these three pieces. Are you then... On staff with the Intercept as an environmental reporter, I wasn't what? yet.
1: I wasn't okay. yet. And at a certain point, my now editor Roger Hodge called me and said, "You know, how about we, we follow this up and you continue to follow this for us?" And over the years, that you know that relationship began as contract, and then I became uh, added to the staff and. You know, we we really did follow it up. I have not counted how many stories we have now. It's dozens. I think it's in the 40s, maybe.
0: Yeah. And why why the rebranding, if you will, as bad chemistry from the Teflon Toxin? I believe the
1: thinking was that the Teflon Toxin was a a, a three-part series. You know, that one, it was nominated for a National Magazine Award as the Teflon Toxin. And so it kind of seemed like number four and number five and number six were not part of that initial series. You know what I mean? So we expanded it. And and also the teflon toxin really was about PFOA and bad chemistry is about the whole PFAS class and all the kind of issues that have grown out of it.
0: Right. And that alone is a story that You'll be able to keep telling for as long as you want to. Unfortunately, because it's, it's just absolutely incredible. All the different ways that you were sort of alluding to that it's polluted the earth and there's um, many ways to talk about it. Are you? Do you still? Are you still interested in that? Or are you getting sick of it? Or
1: well, you know? I, of course I'm interested. I I am, but I also feel like my, maybe my role in that was reporting on it when nobody was reporting on it, you know, or very few people were reporting on it. And yeah. I and I do feel like we did important, we got important stuff out there, um, in the regulatory stuff, um, the first piece about Gen X, the first piece about firefighting foam, that, you know, we got a lot of like, you know, things out there that needed to get out there But maybe my role, you know, I don't think my role is to report on everything about PFAS now that all these publications, maybe my role is to like, go find other things that aren't reported on that need to be, you know, that, I don't know that since I do have so much leeway and space and, you know, like, I feel like the stuff I'm doing now with whistleblowers will probably, you know, lead me to more, you know, I feel like I'm just kind of following the string.
0: Right. And so was it your understanding after that piece that you were going to be an environmental reporter for the intercept? That was your beat, or did you ask for that to be your beat?
1: Well, the beat that, that we came up with, and I I think this was my editor was environmental crime. And you, and I actually really like that framing um, even though it doesn't apply to every single thing, but it is, it, it's keeping front and center the idea that these assaults were and problems that I'm writing about are um, willful. They're, you know, com- they're acts committed by, you know, companies usually that are, you know, should be held responsible, even if they're not, it doesn't mean they're, you know, they're crimes. I'm writing about consequential acts that affect health and, you know, and the environment. So I think crime is actually the right frame. You know, it doesn't, like I say, it hasn't fit every single story I've done, but um, I like thinking about it like that. I,
0: I didn't actually realize that was your title or the framing of it. and it, it, it's I love that. It captures the subject very well, the situation. It captures your work. On, on how you're writing about it and it's also a nice contrast i think to the the limited writing that takes place elsewhere on these issues which i feel is generally very unsatisfactory uh, not everybody i mean there are some other good reporters doing this but it's it's a it's not really being covered usually with that from that frame of mind did you know that you were going to then be I mean, I think of it in terms of toxics, toxic chemicals, toxic pollution. You've written a few stories about climate. I mean, you haven't only written about this, but many, many of your stories have been related to either the air pollution, chemicals or um, pesticides and uh, environmental justice, et cetera. Do you, do you, is that, is that a particular interest coming out of the Florida story for the nation, the toxics piece or what, what's your,
1: why, why do I cover that? Yeah. Why that? I mean, I I do, I guess I do feel like it's underreported and it's, you know, and it matters. And I, and now I'm in a position where I keep finding out things that aren't out there and I feel like should be. So it's kind of just where I ended up. I mean, it it does feel like part of the larger beat of environmental crime for sure. And Mm -hmm. I do think that, again, it's important to keep the focus on some of the focus on who's responsible for this kind of thing. So it has, um, I have ended up fo- focusing a lot of my attention on big companies. You know, uh, there's sometimes the same companies that make the air pollutants and the pesticides and the other toxics, you know, but now it's Bayer and Dow and DuPont or, you know, and Corteva and, you know, these companies that keep popping up because because they're really you know affecting us every day you know in huge ways that I think go unrecognized to a large degree so it's kind of it it feels like they need covering
0: yeah it's interesting those three companies have all changed their names or been bought just since you've been in the last 5 or- Years six years since you've been doing this reporting, uh, Dow becoming Corteva and Dupont becoming Chemours and Monsanto being bought by Bayer. Yeah. Now, so it's Bayer. When you started, did you at this point? I mean, maybe you already did from the from the Teflon toxin part, uh, particularly part three. But coming into it, did what? What was your understanding or impression of EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in particular. I mean, there's other federal agencies that deal with this stuff, but what was your sense of that agency going in and how has that changed or has it changed?
1: I mean, I don't think I understood the extent of the problems in the beginning because I just didn't know the agency that well. Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly under Trump, there, there were so many Fires. There are so many emergencies in like every part of EPA, but it's clear that, you know, the problems have persisted beyond and also many of them predated that. So, um, and I mean, I, I think of it sort of as not a bought and sold agency, not a corrupted agency, but an agency that has quite a bit of strife within it that, you know, there are obviously really corrupt actors in parts of corners of the agency where where big companies hold tremendous sway that they shouldn't have. Um, but, you know, the reporting I've been doing lately is looking at you know, the other piece of that, which is, you know, the folks within the agency were trying to stand up to that and, and fight back. So I feel a little bit like I'm, I'm covering a civil war there.
0: Right. In addition to PFOS, I just want to talk about a couple of the other areas you've really focused on uh, briefly. One which is, again, just I think, becoming more and more understood uh, is the plastics, plastics pollution crisis and you've done you know significant reporting on that including did you actually travel to those other countries for the when you reported those stories you traveled to
1: uh africa kenya
0: yeah and also i think was it afghanistan or or
1: pakistan no no just kenya and ethiopia um and i may have reported on some other countries but didn't travel there
0: okay so how how did that all come about? Well, tell me about just sort of getting into that story.
1: You know, I had been thinking about lobbying, and originally, I thought that I wanted to profile a plastics industry lobbyist, and of course, it's just no no one would talk to me um about that and i and uh, you know, and i my tendency is to over research so you know, I started researching and researching and researching and more and more and more and too much. And and then I saw that there was a plastic industry conference that I could maybe attend that would help me, like, bring it all together. And it did help me bring it all together. I uh, so I ended up going to that conference and then reporting on uh, some of what I learned in, in, there. And that was that was helpful and it kind of ended up being a big piece about the greenwashing of recycling.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you about one other thing you you spent the last mm, little more than a year also writing quite a few covid pieces. And that's something is that sort of the editor saying all hands on deck we have to write about covid or is that something you sort of dove into with a lot of interest? <sighs> you know like oh this is really interesting let me how has how's that been
1: well it did feel like a matter of necessity i mean this was there isn't another health reporter there and i'm kind of as close as it comes in some ways i mean there are other people who who dove in as well um but it, it did feel important and you know if i'm looking for like you know cronyism and malfeasance i can find it there too luckily so you know yes <laughs> um it did feel important to cover that and i i feel like uh, in terms of inequities we're looking at that of course as well with covid i will continue to cover that probably i'll continue to cover all sorts of things but um it has been a little bit of a relief to be able to go back a little bit to the environment in in the past few months
0: yeah One of your most recent stories there is about the bio labs in the U S and you know, what the level of security is at those bio labs and how much there's actually inspections and oversight of what they're doing. I thought it was a really interesting piece. You talked about, um, whose, whose lab was that in Berkeley? It's Oh, bear. Right. Okay. And they're wanting to expand their lab. That's been there in Berkeley for, Many years. I, I'm from the East Bay, actually, mm-hmm. and I did not know that their bio lab was there. So that was a little startling. What oh, did that? You know, that's sort of a that piece gets into a, there's a, a real nexus there between national security and health security and COVID and how, you know, environment. Did that get any new attention or particular attention from sort of different audiences as far as you can tell it's a pretty recent piece so yeah you I know it's it. one
1: of those pieces i gotta say that seems to some of them really grab an audience and this one did not uh and so it, it, i think it, it's sort of the opposite it fell through the cracks i did think it was interesting and, and important too and i especially l- learning about the lack of oversight of these bio labs and putting it into the context that you know we have seen already you know lots and lots of mistakes that are consequential in these bio labs. people who work there die uh yes. you know all these releases of, of very serious um pathogens has happened with regularity hundreds of times every year you know so just putting that also in the context of the discussion about the origins of the pandemic has been interesting i mean that of course has been this really politicized debate Originally politicized debate about you know you can't possibly talk about about the hypothesis of a lab leak, and I think that to look at the reality of how these labs function um, within the U.S. and beyond, it I, I it's really important to consider all that as we discuss this.
0: Yeah. So at this point, are you, do you have new story ideas coming at you? You know a dozen a day or do you just have already your own sort of long list of when I get to it, I want to do this, 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 and this, or is it, uh, is it the opposite? Are you kind of, you know, just one idea and you focus on that for a while and then you're waiting for the next one. What's your, how is it these days?
1: Well, I would say it kind of comes in waves. Um, I definitely have people writing to me a lot about injustices they're facing. And I always, I feel it weighs on me. I'm always glad to have people get in touch. And then I always, it feels terrible not to be able to write about every single one, you know, or to even thoroughly investigate every single one. Cause I can't, but, but I am always, I'm always, I kind of feel like I always have too much to do. Cause I'm, I'm interested. I'm kind of generally interested <laughs> in things, yeah. you know what I mean? And people send me things and I think, "Oh, I definitely want to learn more." And then but I do end up going in 10 directions at the same time sometimes and it, and you can't, you know? I try right. to write things down so I know what I'm doing for the next couple months. Yeah. Um, and and then knowing that I'll get interrupted. Yeah. And you're
0: you tend to write as you were kind of saying yourself in long, your pieces are long. I don't know what the average word length is, but they're, they're, they're pretty in depth. What's your process for, I mean, do you, do all your reporting and then just sit down and, you know, write out your first draft all at once? Or is it, is it, you're piecing it together? What, how do you, how do you go about, you know?
1: I don't know. I wish I had a, a, like a clear process. Usually I research too much, like more than I should research. And I, at a certain point, I think I've got to stop researching. And then I say that to myself for a few days, stop, stop, you know, (laughs) because, and then I make more phone calls and then I make more, and it's like, you got to stop, but like, I can't stop. So then eventually I have too much and then I try to like make sense of it. And hopefully, you know, ideally what happens is like the beginning will jump out to me you know, sometimes the beginning or the end, or you know, and then I just like will throw something down, and then I don't outline the way you should. Uh, I more like will write stuff and then move it around. and then as I'm writing, I might realize, oh, I actually need I have a gap here, and I need to fill it in and call someone else. you know, so it's a pretty messy process. i I wish it weren't that messy
0: is it enjoyable while you're doing it mm. either the reporting or the writing does do you like those or is it more i mean it's all work of course but but is it work work or is it you know this is this is i'm doing this
1: the part i love like so much love is talking to people i love hearing just connecting with people and hearing what they're going through and back when you could travel and you know it i do so much less traveling now basically none but there, you know, for instance, going to Saint John and meeting the people here and really like there and, and and sitting with them and listening and just, I love that. It is my favorite thing in the world to do, and I feel like it's the luckiest, best thing in the world to to meet all these people. It's great. Uh, the writing, it's hard, but then sometimes I like it. You know, sometimes I'll if you know, sometimes like oh that was not that bad, and sometimes it's like you know sawing an arm out.
0: And is, are the editors, you know, cracking the whip? We need another piece. We need another piece. Or do you, what's the expectation as far as?
1: No, mostly not. Mostly not. You know, I feel like I've been given so much leeway. It's not like you need X number of words or X numbers of stories, you know? And it's so, it's like just really wonderful in that way. It's like follow the story and, you know take your time and do it. Right. Great.
0: What, what, um, what's your sense of the power of your work and, or environmental journalism more broadly, but particularly your work, you're, you are covering things that most people are not covering. I've seen, I think I've seen your work have influence on policy issues and bring things to light. But on the other hand, you know, not blaming you at all or me you know we're still in a situation where you know these companies are getting away with massive pollution harming people really causing death and um and never really paying a price for that so what what, how do you view the work and is that is that ever discouraging or is it inspiring to just keep fighting what's your how do you feel about all that
1: well, it's hard to judge, it, and it's hard to predict, very hard to predict what's going to do anything. And sometimes yeah. a little piece that doesn't seem like a big deal will land, you know, and you can tell that, you know, the the plastics piece, right after we put out the plastics piece, um, Coke withdrew from the Plastics Industry Association, and that was super satisfying oh, yeah. and didn't feel like a coincidence, you know. Right. Um, and then sometimes you know you put something out there and nobody cares and so i think impact you always hope for impact but i mean it's really hard to know i do get the sense that particularly the early um work about pfoa and the other PFAS was impactful and i had i still have people calling me from around the country less around the country now more around the world i will get people from italy and from i just got a call from belgium and you know i get people and and i can't often i can't help them but you know they say we have the same problem what can we do and i you know i'm like i'm a journalist i don't you know but or they'll say you know you have you have to come write about us now and it's like i i can't you know but um i do get that a little bit and there's been that's been really interesting on the Pos work to really feel the the sense of it happening unfolding in similar ways around the world at the same time. And I do at some point want to try to capture that some, because it, you know you don't want us, you don't want people around the world to be duplicating work and and for mm-hmm. you know, and, and I do think that we there are sometimes you can really connect the dots where you can say, hey, your ways from the Netherlands, you know, actually your ways from Italy is being shipped to the Netherlands and then coming to New Jersey and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Or North, North Carolina. And, you know, and there was it was helpful to connect with journalists in other parts of the world about that. Have you found many
0: colleagues around the world or even in the US that are similarly focused and interested on these toxic issues?
1: Yes, and in fact, I just wrote a piece with a good friend and colleague at Lamont, Stéphane Herrel, and we collaborated on a piece about paraquat. She well, that was really great fun if, if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> but we we had to go through hundreds of documents, and we did it together. And, you know, and we're able to piece the timeline together. And she's very much focused on the same things that I am. She's uh, written about chlorpyrifos. Perifos. she uh, and she does a lot on sort of lobbying around uh, um endocrine disruptors and other chemicals. so so we have met in person, and we have worked together, and it was a great pleasure. Oh, that's great.
0: All right. so what anything you can say about what's coming up? you can allude to
1: well there will definitely be more pieces uh from the whistleblowers and i can tell you that one question i've been getting about the first whistleblower piece is hey what what are the chemicals what chemicals what companies and unfortunately i haven't been able to report that because a lot of that information is cbi right and and but i will be reporting as much as I, I will be naming names and naming chemicals as much as I possibly can yeah. soon. And I will also, I think, perhaps talk, you know, maybe write more about the CBI issue and about how that has been used to obscure this kind of thing. Oh, um, yeah! But there's certainly even just writing the first piece, it really opened the floodgates for getting more stories and people saying, hey, look, actually, there's this chemical, there's that chemical. And so I'm in the process of like, reviewing information about, you know, from new people now, even even as I get more from the original four whistleblowers.
0: Have you had any industry people? So your your paraquat stories about somebody who had retired I think at the point he reached out to you to talk about that. But have you had much communication from inside the industry itself?
1: I have gotten a lot of people, a lot of people have written to me who are retired from DuPont or whose parents worked from DuPont. And unfortunately a lot of people whose parents died from causes they, you know, for, for they think because of their work for DuPont, I've certainly gotten a lot of that. Once in a great while I'll hear from companies, uh people who are still at companies, but mostly not.
0: Hmm. And what about the companies themselves? Do you think your phone is being tapped by 3M or uh is are you getting followed by by Chemours? I don't think I'm
1: gonna get followed. Though I did I did meet um one of the DuPont some executives not too long ago and he smiled broadly and said, Oh yes, I know your work. So that was nice.
0: Okay. Well, this is great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your taking the time. I know it's, you're super busy.
1: No, it's fun. Thank you.
0: The toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg you can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.